Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hey everyone, Joe here. What you're about to listen to is a recording I recently did with Lithium Americas. During this recording, we had some technical difficulties. You may hear that either as extra long pauses or what seems like a disconnect between the the guests and myself during the interview. I still think it's a great story and I I think it's a great show. I just wanted to warn you about that and say thank you for for listening in and and listening through the entire episode. With that, let's get to the recording. Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Today on the show, I have Dr. Tom Benson, Manager of Global Exploration, and Dr. Renee LeBlanc, Chief Technical Officer at Lithium Americas Corporation. Lithium Americas is a lithium mining development company with the Kaukatra Alaroz Lithium Project in the Jujuy province of Argentina and the Thacker Pass Project in Nevada, USA. Thank you for being on the show today with me. To start things off, I'm going to need you to correct my pronunciations of those projects you have, introduce yourselves a little bit more, and tell the audience what are the things I've missed about Lithium Americas? Sounds good. Um, this is Rennie LeBlanc. Uh, good to be on the program with you today. And yeah, uh, the, the two projects that we're working on developing, one is in Jujuy, Argentina, uh, northern Argentina, called Calchari Olros is the deposit. Um, and we have a operation in northern Nevada, right on the Oregon border, that we're working to develop called Thacker Pass. Uh, those two projects, uh, when they come online, will be some of the largest operations to have come online in the last 30 years. Tom, can you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Tom Benson. I'm the head geologist at Lithium Americas, and I'm working with the teams at both of the projects that were currently under construction and development, as well as uh, looking at our greenfield exploration for new resources around the globe. Thank you both for your introductions. And before we dig into lithium mining and lithium Americas more, I want to set the stage for the audience. So right now seems like a wild time in the lithium world. Demand is projected to increase by 40%. Seems like every time you look, there's another Tesla or Rivian or the Ford F-150 Lightning. They are all coming onto the market. So with that, I would assume prices are also skyrocketing for lithium. With those ideas, I've got, I've got two, two big questions. Where does this demand come from? Is it really just electric vehicles and batteries? Well, I guess I've got three questions. How much lithium is being produced every year? And then the last question is how much of that is going or how many electric vehicle batteries would we be able to produce 
using one year supply of lithium just to kind of set that stage for people for reference? It's a great question. Uh, last year, uh, the industry tends to measure itself in terms of uh, how many tons of lithium carbonate equivalent that's been produced. There's actually a couple of different lithium-based chemicals that are needed for uh, the energy storage space as well as other markets. But for cathode production, typically that's lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide that is is in demand right now. Uh, in the last year, about 380,000 tons of lithium carbonate equivalent was actually produced worldwide from all of the operations out there. And that would give you roughly, uh, if I'm doing the math correctly in my head, about 380 gigawatt hours worth of batteries worth of production worldwide. Now, as you and I'm sure your listeners know, there's been a lot more uh, battery production capacity that's been announced than that. And in recent times, the like the last half of this year, the pricing on lithium products really has jumped a lot. Uh, so if you look at things like the spot market price in China, where a good bit of the cathode material is actually currently manufactured, and honestly, a lot of the chemical conversion actually occurs from mine material in Australia, um, that pricing had gone from about six to $7,000 a ton on the spot market to reports that we're seeing right now that are thirty-two dollars to $33,000 a ton for that same spot material. And there are several discussions that we've had where the projection, at least from folks that are in the industry right now, not just lithium producers, but uh, many of the customers, they're thinking that that could go up another 20 to 30% uh, in the first half of next year. So there is a lot of demand. Um, there is a, the, the price has responded correspondingly, like you said. But the big takeaway there is that the market is already in almost a structural shortage, even with the, the amount of cathode and battery production today. So new projects are needed across the board. And even more importantly, those projects have to be responsible producers. They're, they have to have a low uh, carbon impact as well as environmental impact overall in order to make this successful. So that's something that all of the producers right now are, are starting to take a look at. But I'll, I'll admit I'm very proud of what our teams have done at, at Lithium Americas to try and develop the most responsible processes possible for the particular resources that we're working on. Um, over the coming few years, some of the projections that are out there right now from a few of the big analysts are that we will have to go from about 380,000 to 400,000 tons a year worth of production of lithium carbonate equivalent up to about 2 million tons of production just to keep up with the energy storage space needs. Now, the energy storage space, as you mentioned, is definitely EVs, but it's also all of the stationary storage systems that are being installed to support things like solar and wind power that is more of a peak energy to fit it into a smart grid. I'm curious with, with that EVs versus the, the battery storage that goes with and directly onto the grid for these intermittent renewables. What's the, what's the different percentages there in terms of how much, how much is being produced for, for EVs, how much, how many EVs are being built compared to battery storage? Today, it's primarily EVs uh, as far as the volume goes that's being produced. However, one of the stationary storage systems is orders of magnitude larger as far as the amount of energy storage is what you'd see in a, in a typical vehicle. So something like the uh, energy storage system that was put into Australia a few years ago by Tesla was around 200 to 250 megawatt hours of electricity storage, while a typical EV is 100 kilowatt hours at the top end. So it's a, it's a full three orders of magnitude difference. 
the nice thing is, is when you're thinking about something like a battery storage system measured in kilowatt hours or in megawatt hours, it's pretty easy to convert back to the overall lithium demand because typically it runs about one kilogram per kilowatt hour as a, as a quick conversion. So it's fast to figure out that something that's a 30 gigawatt hour uh, factory would require something like 35,000 tons or 30,000 tons worth of lithium carbonate equivalent. That's pretty fascinating to think about how how much more we are going to need if we continue on these same projections. And there, there's a lot of a lot of discussion we could have about EVs versus versus grid storage and and how to do that in a as as you point out an environmentally responsible way and a really a kind of balancing the environmental aspects versus the economic versus versus the rest of the energy basket that we have. I I'd like to in case our our viewers don't understand because we we need more lithium. So as you pointed out, we need more projects, but I'm not sure everybody's going to know what it takes to mine lithium. So let's let's go kind of all the way back to the beginning. Where do we find lithium? What are the different types of lithium deposits? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, traditionally, lithium was mined from uh, what uh, several people called hard rock deposits, or uh, in geological speak, it's pegmatite deposits, or it's a typical quarry or pit, open pit style operation where you're mining lithium bearing minerals. Primarily the mineral spodumene, which, which is a lithium-bearing pyroxene, but also pedalite and some other lithium metals, uh, lithium-bearing minerals. And you take that material, you crush it, you roast it, and you send it off to your uh, uh, manufacturers to make a cathode. Um, and traditionally, that's how the U.S. mined it uh, from uh, pegmatites in the Black Hills and in North Carolina. And then uh, in the past, you know, half a half a century or a little more, uh, we started to mine lithium from brine deposits. These are basically saline waters that are uh, buried deep beneath valleys, uh, first in the U.S. in the Silver Peak deposit in southern Nevada, which is the only current uh, domestic producer of lithium, but primarily from brines beneath Solars in South America, what's known as the Lithium Triangle of uh, Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. And what happens in these projects is you have injection uh, or production wells where you uh, tap the brine that's stored at depth several hundred meters or greater below the surface of the solar, you pump it into evaporation ponds, and you use the power of the sun to further concentrate that brine in lithium. And you pass it through several ponds and eventually send it to your processing facility where you can then make your lithium chemicals. The third type of lithium deposit that what the, and so our project in Calchari Oloros uh, in Bahui, Argentina is a brine type deposit. Uh, the third type is uh, what I like to refer to as sedimentary lithium deposit, which is the new, newest type of lithium deposit. Um, and this is what Thacker Pass is in uh, Nevada, where the lithium is hosted in clay or mud-rich sediments. So uh, what we'll do at Thacker Pass, we'll have a very shallow pit. We basically scrape this, these muddy sediments that are hosted in this old supervolcano called the McDermott Caldera. We'll scrape these sediments um, off the surface of the earth and then uh, send, it, send that material to a processing facility on site, which can then uh, process the material to create the lithium chemicals. So there, those are the three main types of deposits. Thank you for that that thorough explanation. I I imagine as as you were talking, I was thinking the differences between dealing with evaporation versus versus basically hammering and pulverizing rock versus what um, what I'm going to lovingly say is digging a big pit in terms of sedimentary, just kind of digging it out. 
I know I'm I'm making it very very simplistic. Uh, I think the point is that to me it sounds like getting that resource are different processes, and ultimately that is just that is just the kind of the host material of the lithium. Is there a different process for those to actually extract the lithium from that lithium ore? I would uh, jump jump in here before Renee can get into the process. I would say that when you think of mining, you say big pit, right? You think of these giant kilometer deep pits that are just kilometers wide. This is, that's not what, these are, that's, you think of copper and gold and things like that. Those are giant pits. Those are big pits. This proposed pit at Thacker Pass is maximum, uh, I think, at the 40-year, the end of the mine life, it's 100 meters at greatest. Um, it's very oh, wow. shallow, and, um, and from a reclamation standpoint as well, we're also doing progressive reclamation, where as we, we know where the bottom of the resource is, um, and so as we mine, fo- we mine forward, we start backfilling the pit and planting you know, local sagebrush uh seed on it so it's actually being reclaimed as we go and there'll be no giant pit left over it'll be totally reclaimed and look somewhat similar to the current um uh i guess uh geography that's right and and tom like you said it also comes down to how you you do like you said if you're digging into the earth it's how you complete that operation as well So many folks tend to think of mining as you just dig the hole and leave it behind. But to Tom's point, something like the operation in Nevada that we're proposing, we would actually do something called concurrent reclamation. That's the phrase that uh, the regulators are using and we tend to talk about it as. And it is what it says. It effectively looks like a trench moving through the earth over the years. And we're continually putting material back in and as we take material out. So it never comes as a, like you said, a big hole. It, it's something a bit different. And it's something that I think takes a lot of people by surprise. Uh, same thing with the ponding operations that we would have at something like a salar. Uh, when you're dealing with brines, as Tom mentioned, you drill down to the brine depth and then you would draw the liquid up to the surface in order to process that material. So again, there isn't really a big hole to speak of. It's it's different than what a lot of people would think when they first think of the term mining. And like you said, you'd, you'd asked a question about you know, the processing needs. And honestly, every single deposit that's out there has an entirely different set of the periodic table in it. So if you go to, say, a brine operation in Chile versus a different salar, say, in Argentina, you have a totally different composition of the brine, and therefore you need to have a different process. Uh, Same type of thing if you get to any hard rock operation, something like the spodumene you were referring to earlier. And, you know, sedimentary deposits like this are no different. Um, Each one requires a different processing path because what we have to do is marry up the reality of what's in the ground to the actual needs and demands of the energy storage space. So if you think about driving around in an EV, whether that be a a Tesla or a Porsche or, or a Mustang or something like that, that battery pack has very, very specific requirements so that it can be both safe because it's storing a lot of energy in a small place, right? And it has to have a long life. Nobody wants a car that lasts for three years before you have to replace the most expensive component. So the quality and consistency is incredibly stringent. And many of the people that are producing the cathode, the parts that go into the battery itself, require very consistent levels at parts per million and parts per billion of most of the contaminants. So we have to be very careful and thoughtful not only about what our environment can sustainably support, 
or our local communities, but we also have to think about how do you take the reality of what's actually in the ground and get to something that could actually be used for an energy storage device. So let's talk about that a little bit more, because basically what what I'm hearing you say is that, that I guess a, a, a pessimistic view of it is that you've basically said there are some some deposits that are not environmentally friendly to mining and there are some that we just should never never go for is am i hearing you correctly <laughs> in some cases there are definitely going to be challenges around dealing with a deposit so that's part of doing this responsibly so as we go in and look at a particular resource or operation we have to really understand what's in the ground. Many of them, almost all of the ones today that I know of that are out there, are very, very focused on making sure that they can responsibly access that deposit. Now, it doesn't mean that they should never be touched. What it means is that they have different challenges involved. So for something where you have, say, like Argentina or in Chile, the groundwater itself, the drinking water, actually has measurable levels of arsenic in it. So you have to be careful that you don't concentrate something that's undesirable, and you have to make sure that you know how to handle those materials all the way through responsibly. Okay. That makes more sense. And I, I think that that's a very good and very important point to to address because as as we're discussing here, there, there is this need for the lithium. And, and I think that, I think that we are going to be seeing that need increase. And as these projects need to get online, we have to know how to be processing them. This is one of those, one of those fun engineering sayings is taking off in the plane before and building it in the air. I think to me, this is something that we should not be building in the air. Totally agree with you. And also, I would say the other part of this, too, is that it takes a very dedicated, intelligent team of people that can sit down and take a look at the potential challenges and find the right solutions to them. So it is, it's very much, just like everything in life, it's very much a human endeavor. And it takes a lot of focus and work from the geology and exploration phase all the way through to developing the operation responsibly, going through your permitting processes. And every country has a different way to permit and try to guarantee that those operations are responsible and can produce the material that's needed. So it's very much like playing five-dimensional chess. It's a whole lot of fun when you get into it. It sounds like a whole lot of fun. I, I, I would like to kind of walk through Thacker Pass. I think that would be a, a great way because you're, you're explaining how you have to play this five-dimensional chess, how you have to really build these projects from the ground up to make them as as environmentally friendly as possible while also really something we haven't touched on is the is the economics behind it 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 does have to make economic sense so i i'd be really curious if we can walk through thacker pass kind of from the ground up and use that as as a case study to show how how lithium americas is going through this process Definitely. Then what I'd like to do is start off with, with Tom to kind of go through the what we're doing with the mining side and deposit, which we've touched on a little bit. And then I can take on the, the processing aspects as we go forward through the, the actual uh, specialty facility, if that would work. Yeah, I think that sounds sounds great. So, Tom, can you give us a little bit more details? Because Thacker Pass sounds like a almost a, a special case scenario, as, as you said, this new third type of deposit being sedimentary lithium. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, I mean, it's, I did my PhD on this uh, deposit and it's 
in this super volcano that I mentioned before called the McDermott Caldera. And a quick overview of the geology is about 16 million years ago, uh, McDermott Caldera was the site of a giant super eruption. Over a thousand cubic kilometers of material erupted uh, uh, at um, 16.3 million years ago. And for reference, not St. Helens is maybe a couple of cubic kilometers at best. So this is a giant eruption. This is actually one of the first eruptions associated with the modern day Yellowstone super volcano, which is currently uh, under uh, uh, Western Wyoming. Uh, and so, uh, so you had this giant uh, super volcano, a bunch of material evacuated from the subsurface, and you can't have a giant cave that's forty by thirty kilometers wide underneath the surface of the Earth. So the roof of that magma chamber collapsed and formed a giant bowl or cauldron, which is called a caldera. And in that bowl, it acted as a regional uh, catchment basin. Uh, so all the water. From the region accumulated in this basin. And think of a place like Crater Lake, but an order of magnitude bigger. Uh, so this is, like I said, 40 by 30 kilometer giant hole in the ground. And so what happened was all of the volcanic material that was erupted was rich in lithium. And the water that uh, uh, naturally leached the lithium from that rock and accumulated in the basin of this caldera. And so what happened was you have all this lithium-rich water, and you eventually start precipitating lithium muds out of solution of clays, and then they accumulate in the bottom of the river, this very still lake. And so eventually you had some hydrothermal activity, some other volcanic activity that caused part of the clays to become even more enriched in lithium, and this is in the Thacker Pass area in the southern part of the caldera. But if you take a look at the whole caldera in general, you have once the lake eventually drained, maybe about a million years after eruption, so say around 15 million years ago, these clay-rich sediments, very muddy sediments, you can actually break them apart with your hand, um, they've been sitting on the surface of the earth for 15 million years. Um, and so just sitting there, and uh, it, it first were documented to have high lithium in the 1970s when Chevron was actually prospecting for uranium in the area. And USGS worked with them and started to look at, wow, these are very lithium-rich sediments. And what we find is that the clay at Thacker Pass itself contains over a weight percent lithium. So 1% of the wow. material is lithium. And for reference, the average uh, continental crust contains, you know, four orders of magnitude and less than that. So around one, uh, less than one uh, weight percent lithium. So, you know, sorry, less than one ppm lithium. So this is crazy lithium enrichments. And a recent paper uh, published last year in the journal Minerals estimate that 120 million tons of lithium metal are contained within the whole caldera lake sediments, in this whole caldera. So that number, what does 120 million tons mean? For reference, that what people think is the whole caldera um, is a significant resource, likely the largest known deposit in the world. And so if you look at Thacker Pass itself, it's super high, highly enriched in lithium in the southern part of the caldera. And the, um, the project that's being proposed is just in the southern part where it's really the highest grade is what we're targeting. And so as proposed, uh, we will have this shallow pit that will last about 40 uh, 40 years um, uh, of, of mine life, and, mine life, and like when they said, we'll have this concurrent reclamation as we go about it. And what we'll do is we'll take that material uh, from the earth and start a beneficiation process, which I guess this is where I'll, I'll let Renee take over from here. The processing, I guess we would talk about next, and then, and I know Tom was really really excited to have you talk about that because it is this new, <laughs> a, a new process and the way he explained it is that it's, it is very innovative and really just kind of changing the game with, with lithium processing. 
Yeah, and I'll admit with the the resource that we have in Thacker Pass right now, it does make that it, it it's something that makes it a lot easier uh, because, as Tom mentioned a little while ago, if we're up around one percent in the material that's there, uh, you don't have to move as much out of the ground versus many other resources. So if you look at the grade of a, of a lot of the sedimentary resources that are out there, you know, many of them tend to run about, you know, 1800 parts per million as lithium, you know, in the bulk clay, while Thacker Pass is up around 3600 ppm in the bulk material. And one of the things that we realized early on is that no matter the type of resource that you're working with, you're trying to basically undo what the volcano did to begin with to get the lithium back out. So if you think of something like spodumene, you actually have to get it really hot in order to change the crystal structure over and get it to open up to let the lithium out. So to do that, most of the spodumene-based, well, all of the spodumene-based processes that are running today actually have to roast the rock to almost 1,100 degrees Celsius. That takes a lot of fuel to do. And on top of that, you have to grind the rock down to something that you could actually fit into something to roast it in. Many of the hard rock operations, not just in lithium, Almost a quarter of the energy used in the operation is actually just in taking that rock and reducing it down in size physically to make it small enough to handle. And when you go through and roast it, as you can imagine, that's a lot more energy that's needed for that. For something like Thacker Pass, what we realized is that once you contact this material with water just as it comes out of the ground, it disengages. And we've developed a very unique uh, beneficiation process that uses standard existing process equipment. You know, there are pr- people that produce it already, in other words, and it allows us to go from about 3,600 parts per million to almost 10,000 ppm before we start to try and remove the lithium from the clay. So the less material you have to handle, the less energy, the less reagents that you have to use in order to get it out of the ground. And the other thing we did a lot is we made sure that the process is something called a zero liquid discharge. So I'm sure you've seen some of the things that have happened in South America with things like tailings dams that have failed. Mm -hmm. We're not going to build a tailings dam. What we're building in reality is something called dry stack, where you actually filter the material, get down to a solid cake. And then you store that and it ends up looking like a hill covered in sagebrush when you're done. Um, It doesn't look like a lake or something like that, right? Um, So by doing that and by reusing the water in the process thousands of times over and over again, it's allowed us to actually end up with a very small water footprint in northern Nevada. Um, Up near where the site is, if you take a look at a satellite, image, you can actually see a bunch of green circles on the map. Each one of those green circles is an alfalfa farm. So they're bringing water up right now and spraying it on the fields in order to grow alfalfa that they then feed to animals or ship overseas or or what have you. When we we are going to use water by, we've actually had to buy a set of ranches up there, just like many of the other mining operations have. And we're going to convert that from an agricultural use to an industrial use. When you do that, the state of Nevada automatically reduces the amount of water you're allowed to draw by 20%. So effectively, by converting from farming into this specially chemical mining operation, we're going to end up giving back 20% of the water rights we had to buy, which will actually reduce the water stress on the basin versus what's being used there today. So the other thing that we've done too is that, you know, since we're actually using uh, acid to remove uh, the lithium from the clay matrix and it's getting neutralized in the process, you make things like Epsom salt, like you'd use in a bath um, as the byproducts. What we have to do is make that acid on site. Well, when you make acid from sulfur and you burn it, you can capture almost all of it 
uh, almost all of the material that gets burned so that on a plant that would produce thousands of tons per day of sulfuric acid, you only would ever release something in the neighborhood of about 60 tons a year of sulfur-containing gases. It's, it's less sulfur leaving the plant than what you would see at something like the local uh, gravel facility, right, or at the local municipal dump with the trucks that are running over there. On top of that, it makes a tremendous amount of energy. So by doing it this way, we move less material to site, so less weight to site, less transportation cost, obviously, but also less emissions from transporting it. And we get to make electricity from it to help run the site without burning any natural gas at all or any other carboniferous fuels. So by doing that and integrating the process and understanding the physics of how the deposit was formed, which Tom was going through a little while ago, and the physics of how this material wants to behave and actually does behave naturally, you can actually use that to create a process with overall a very small footprint that ends up generating a material that's really in desperate need in order to support the energy transition we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's really cool to to hear about the the processing side of it and to hear the the aspect of really it, it's it is very resource specific and it's it's almost because of of this natural resource that that is there that you have this this um you have this almost i guess the best way to put it is that it's it's a more environmentally lithium deposit than others at least that's that's what i'm hearing because of the the human ingenuity that you were speaking to earlier and and the the very high concentration that is naturally existing due to the geology which we were able to find we being lithium americas and and finally the whole the whole process of putting it all together that's right. And, and honestly, you have to approach this from a holistic standpoint. So, and when I say that, not only from a process, right, like a, a plant that would actually produce the final material, but you also have to look at it from what your local environment and communities have that is actually available for use. And honestly, by going through and doing this type of optimization, it doesn't go in the opposite direction from making something more economic. If you can be more efficient and more responsible with your recovery and your use, it should also have a net economic positive benefit as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's something that something that, that has come up before on this podcast and, and as we as we talk through these things that that really that that environmental aspect and and seeing that value oftentimes that directly relates to an economic uh, a net economic benefit as opposed to some type of negative or, or neutral benefit or lack thereof that one I think we can probably fit in with uh, a back or past discussion about how we are planning to access that resource and material. And really right now, that's, I think the easiest way to answer that, like you said, is it comes back to that innovation question around mining and operations. And with something like heavy machinery, there's a definite interest in going for electrification further electrification of the equipment, many of the very large uh, vehicles that are used for mining operations are actually effectively very large Priuses. Uh, they have a generator on board that's run by a diesel motor and then have battery storage systems and they do energy recovery as they're you know, moving that big mass down into a hole or once it's loaded, they can then use it to bring it back up again. 
when you get to a lot of the underground operations. So, for example, if you ever get a chance to go to Green River, Wyoming, all places, that's one of the largest producers of soda ash in the world. And their operations are thousands of meters below ground. Well, you don't want to have an, industri- a, an internal combustion engine down there because you have all of the gases that can come off of those. So they fully electrified a lot of that equipment, but it's all designed for underground operation and mining. So those capacities are built to do that specific function, right? But as time goes forward, there's actually quite a few manufacturers out there that are looking at how they could potentially electrify a lot of the industrial equipment, whether that be the shovels, the the large uh, excavators that are used, the um, grading equipment, or even the trucks that would move material back and forth. And with something like Thacker Pass, what we're talking about right now is trying to minimize the number of trucks on site to begin with. So you remember earlier we were talking about how we would basically cut a trench into the upper, into the deposit. And as we're removing material from one phase, we would be filling on the other in that concurrent reclamation plan. Well, the other thing we're looking at right now is just having trucks that are operating in in that trench itself. So what we would do is actually process, start the processing of the ore and make a slurry out of it. And then you'd use an electric pump effectively to move the slurry from the pit down to the plant. So there wouldn't be a large diesel truck running back and forth, right? So there's a lot of technology today that exists to help electrify. There's still more work that needs to be done, obviously. Um, And, you know, as time goes forward and we get closer to production, hopefully a few of the major producers that are out there will have figured out a bit more about how to electrify some of this very large scale equipment that would be needed. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I, I really enjoy that idea of the slurry and an electric pump as opposed to having having the large earth movers and and basically driving trucks back and forth that is to me that is a very clever ingenious idea that that i would imagine most people just most people outside of mining have probably never even never even thought about that idea of of moving the slurry as opposed to the trucking that typically occurs. I've got a question. Yeah, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, I know what you mean. And it's, it's interesting because I also know that the mining industry tends to get a, a certain reputation with a lot of folks, sometimes, sometimes deserved based on historic, uh, you know, inferences and applications. But there is a large group of folks that are in the industry that really are trying to find new and clever solutions to this. And sometimes it's it's taking examples from other industries. Sometimes it is looking at the problem a slightly different way and seeing if there might not be a better solution based on what people have learned from the past. Uh, what was the old phrase, something about, it's not that I am so tall, but I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that came before me. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I I like it. So, Tom, I've got a question for you. Earlier, you mentioned that that the, the Thacker Pass is an old caldera, the McDermott caldera. As you know, really, as as we know each other, is through volcanoes and geothermal energy. So, another idea, as we talk about electrification of of plants, of of mining, I would imagine that we need to also find ways to to produce more renewable energy and more consistent renewable energy. Here, obviously, I'm going to the idea of volcanoes geothermal how how many existing lithium resources are co-located with potential geothermal energy or are there ways to think about wind and solar to to give that energy to to these mining operations 
Right. Currently, there are no lithium projects under production uh, co-located with geothermal power. There are a few proposals, uh, the most uh, famous ones being in the Salton Sea, as well as uh, in the Rhine Valley in Germany. Uh, these technologies are under development. Uh, they, there's all, like Rene was mentioning earlier, every project has its pros and cons. One of the great things about the idea of geothermal lithium is that, you know, you can, while you are generating power, you can extract lithium from, from the brine. But as you know, there's a lot of nasty stuff in geothermal waters, right? And so, and once you open up that system, um, you'll lose more heat. And you have a lot of you know, contaminants that if you're pumping, if you're altering the chemistry of the geothermal waters, and then you pump it back into the ground, you could be causing some uh, local environmental problems. So as is the case with you know, Thacker Pass, where we've gone through 10 years of environmental reviews and modeling the groundwater, these projects that are under development, they need those same thorough reviews to make sure that um, you are not impacting adversely the environmental, um, the local environment, especially in a place like the Salton Sea, which has been, you know, ravaged for decades by the agricultural industry uh, due to the all the uh, contaminants there. So I think it's it's a really exciting idea, and I think that technology should develop because we need all the lithium we can get. Um, and I think it's uh, and I, the one really good benefit of it is that you can generate that uh, you know relatively that carbon-free uh, or lower carbon energy uh, from geothermal um, as well as extract the lithium from it if the technology can get there. Yep. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a, it seems like the, uh, a natural way to to decarbonize mining is just by pulling that resource from the already produced fluids. And I think if if there are potential for those co-located or even even something like Thacker Pass where it's it's beneficial because you would be on the Nevada grid, which has a significant amount of geothermal energy being produced and put onto the grid. And I think that's a another way to think about that decarbonization aspect of of the mining. Because then if you can electrify the mining operations it you don't necessarily have to be co-located with an existing renewable energy source. You just need to know that the electrons you are using are in fact green. Right, and I think that you need to have, um, you know, it needs to be. It's not a black or white or one or the other scenario. I think all of these need to play a role in the ultimate, you know, solution to decarbonize our our world and. I think geothermal lithium is an exciting technology that should and will be used in the future. Uh, I think it gets a lot of great hype because the concept is great. Um, uh, but I, like I said, we need to you know do a lot more uh, of that environmental and chemical work on this uh, on on this type of deposit. You know, you think of Brian, like the Atacama brines have a, a thousand milligrams per liter lithium. A lot of these geothermal brines, you know, are less than 100 milligrams per liter as well. So in terms of impact to the water that you use, you're also, you need to look, look about concentration as well, because ultimately, whether it's water or, or fluid or if it's rock, if you want to minimize your environmental footprint, you want to reduce the amount of materials that you're removing and processing. That's why uh, the Atacama brines are so nice because they're very lithium rich and that's why the Thacker Pass clay is great uh, because it's so lithium rich so you to get the same amount of lithium as you would in, at, at a lower concentration resource you have to uh, remove considerably less material yeah that is uh, one of those things that that is just uh, something we don't talk about but it is kind of obvious that the the resource is the ultimate driver, not only in economics, but almost more importantly today, the environmental impact. The better the resource, the less material you have to move. Less material means ultimately less impact. And it's cheaper. Uh, yes, and it's cheaper. 
So now I've got a few final questions that I'm going to ask. Let's start with Renee. Renee, what is the most important book you've ever read? Good question. Uh, it was actually something a friend of mine had written years ago. It's going to take me a minute to remember the title, but uh, it was actually around. It's actually around people and development of resilient teams. It, the one thing that that always hit me with that particular book was that a lot of this comes down to the people and the relationships that we form in life and how important those really are without the open communication and questions. It is nearly impossible to be understood by each other. So that was something to me that although it's, it's nothing as, as fun as some other books that I've read, it was something that really had a deep takeaway for me. Tom, what about you? What's the most important book you've ever read? I would say Principles of Igneous and Metamorphic Petrology by Anthony Philpotts. Definitely does the basis for my PhD work and ultimately for understanding the origin of looking deposits. I like it, going back to a textbook. And that that is definitely a good one. So the next question I have, Renee, we'll start with you again. When will we be net zero as a society? It's a good question, and and I hate to give you a total engineer wishy-washy answer of it depends, but I honestly hope that we can get there in the next 10 to 20 years. I know that there's a lot of challenges involved with that, and you know some of these things, I think, are where there's such an opportunity for people that are, are curious or are interested, whether it be from a working on those issues standpoint, like Tom and I enjoy doing, or if it was something along the lines of supporting those types of initiatives and those types of folks that are doing that work. So, you know, I really hope that we kind of have our moonshot moment again uh, and can really rise to that challenge as a society. I like that answer, even though it depends is is not a number. I think it, <laughs> <laughs> most people don't actually give a, a straight answer. And I think that's part of the whole reason we do this podcast, because it is getting to net zero. When will we be there and how we will get there? Those are those are what we're trying to figure out. And and ultimately building upon that, the idea is how can we get there faster? And that is that is something that maybe in a year after after we're on that path, then we can start asking that question. So, Tom, what about you? When do you think we'll be net zero? I think that uh, it will be a lot sooner than most people think. Um, you know, I I think human ingenuity is a powerful thing, and so are. Uh, so is the market. And I think that as going green becomes more economically attractive and as the climate crisis rears its head in more and more obvious ways, people are going to uh, really put the resources both monetarily and brain-wise into correcting the ship. I think things like carbon sequestration there's a lot of really great research going on right now on, on CO2 sequestration in a bunch of different forms at AGEA this week. So we're looking at potentially looking at our SMET kites at Dacker Pass as a way to uh, uh, sequester CO2 in the inner layer of the clays. So there's a lot of really cool research and a lot of money that's going into uh, uh, decarbonizing our society. And I think that government... Uh, private companies and the oil and gas industry, you know, all and fossil fuel industry, all have a significant role to play in this. And I think it will become, it will come faster than we all think it will. That's a, it's an interesting and optimistic take that it will end up being sooner than we think. And I hope you're right. And 
I think it it's it's beautiful to think about the the fact that it really is the human ingenuity that is going to drive it, and then also the the simple fact that it it's going to make economic sense and it's going to be driven by by what the market wants and desires. And I think that's I think it's so true is that that really the market does drive a lot of a lot of society and and we do see that today that that there is a very strong push for green technology and for green investment and and that that if that holds and continues then we could very well be there in much much sooner than well maybe not much sooner than 2050 because it's practically 2022 but we could be there sooner than 2050. So the last question I have for you two is, do you have one question for me? And again, you can both ask me questions. Renee, let's start, let's start with you. Sounds good. In, I know with your podcast, you've interviewed uh, quite a few folks from different areas of the, the transition towards uh, more sustainable energy what is it that surprised you the most in your conversations, whether it be with guests or other other people you may have run across? So what surprised me the most with everybody that I've that I've talked with would have to be the I guess the the big trends that I see are efficiency improvements to ultimately drive down the 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 expense and the operating expenses that ultimately increases the bottom line and and ultimately that those efficiency improvements even though they're being driven by those economic factors what a lot of those are seeing is is a is an environmental impact that, well, it's a reduction in the environmental impact of that technology or of that process or of that, of that specific part of the energy basket or energy infrastructure or utilization of energy. And to me, that is, I guess, uh, recently I've had a company called Aviva on the podcast and they talk about kind of this roadmap for the energy transition, the roadmap to net zero and kind of the first steps are that energy efficiency. And it seems like everybody's already kind of there wanting to be more efficient. And it seems like every time the, the oil and gas industry goes through a downturn, you can see that efficiency increase because they have to cut expenses which ultimately makes it so they can be profitable. And I think that now all of society and really pretty much everybody is realizing we need to cut our environmental expenses. We need to reduce that CO2 footprint that we have. No matter who we are, no matter what industry we're in, we need to reduce our CO2 output so that the environment can, can recover. And so that's something interesting. It doesn't really matter who I end up talking to. We, we see everybody, kind of the first and easiest step that everybody's doing is efficiency improvements and then going towards the really figuring out the rest of the technology towards that net zero goal. So I, I guess, I don't know if that actually answered the question. It does. It does. No, and I appreciate it because I know many times, at least, and Tom, I know is the same way. When you sit down to work with people or teach a subject, that's when you always seem to learn more than you ever expected, even if you if you thought you had a good handle on it. So thank you. Yep. Yep. You're welcome. Tom, what about you? What question do you have for me? What technology are you most excited about um, in all these conversations that you've had that you think can potentially make maybe not the most significant at, um, impact, but a very significant impact on 
decarbonizing our economy? The most significant or most exciting technology that is, I feel like that's a trick question because as you even said earlier, it's not a, there is no silver bullet. It is the energy basket. Everything is required to actually solve this, this energy transition conundrum that we have. And even, even oil and gas, there will still be oil and gas production, but it is going to need to look different and it is going to need to be coupled with carbon sequestration. So that's a, a roundabout way of saying it. Every single one excites me. I think the things that I am, I am most of a cheerleader for are definitely the broad topics of geothermal energy and carbon sequestration. The, the thing that, that I actually unfortunately have not had on the podcast yet, which I, I need to do is somebody to come on and talk about smart grid technology with distributed energy, because as, as you two know, with electric vehicles and with battery storage and with the idea that everybody has that 100 kilowatt hour battery sitting in their garage and and how that changes what the grid can look like and how grid distribution can take place i think all all of those aspects are very important for for energy balancing and load distribution so that we can better utilize our intermittent renewable energies. And another I, another big technology that I haven't been able to have on the podcast yet is synthetic geothermal resources. The idea of, of basically taking those intermittent or, or variable renewable energies storing those in the ground for a seasonal storage and then being able to use those later, say when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing on a seasonal scale, as opposed to a kind of a diurnal or daily scale. Those are things that I'm very excited about. I want to have an expert on the podcast. I just haven't gone to it yet. So, with that, before we sign off, is there any anything else y'all want to say? Tom, I've been letting Renee go first. Tom, do you want to go first this time? I think we uh, about covered everything. Uh, I know I had some technical difficulties, so I don't know how much uh, was cut off. You need to... Uh, re-record anything i'm happy to do that but no I, I really enjoyed having this conversation and yeah look forward to you know uh, continuing to work to develop these projects to really you know hopefully make an impact on the world it's a really exciting time to be involved thank you i i think the the podcast despite the technical difficulties is sounding great i'm excited to share this episode with everybody and yeah, we're. I'm excited to to watch Lithium Americas and the development that that takes place. Renee, what about you? Any last words? Yeah, I really appreciate you having us on uh, to get to talk with your audience and to kind of walk through a little bit about you know who we are and, and what we're doing and. Hopefully, it's hopefully everyone understands that sometimes the innovation, like you were mentioning earlier, is a, a big vision item that, that changes so many things for everyone. Other times, you can have a very big impact by getting into the details and looking at things a different way. And like you mentioned earlier, sometimes that might be in you know, improving efficiency or other, other ways to, to deal with some of these things. But it's going to take a wide variety of people with a, a large diversity of 
skills and backgrounds to, to really figure this out and get to that objective. And, you know, hopefully Tom's right on his timing and we can, we can get there sooner than anyone expects. Well, Renee, Tom, thank you very much for joining me on the show and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories happening in the energy industry or keep up to date with just general energy news, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you ever get bored working in the same workspace, if you are in the Houston area, I encourage you to go try out the Canning co-working space. If you mention OGGN, they'll give you a free day pass. It's where I always work when I'm in Houston, and I would really enjoy you going, checking it out, seeing what I'm talking about. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you want to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.